This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, from the anecdotal reports that we are hearing and seeing from people, it sounds like many of you out there did decide that this was a weekend to travel somewhere in BC. Now, we're not talking the usual huge lineups on Highway 1 or at the ferry terminals, but it is definitely busier out there than it has been the last few weekends. And this is despite the fact that everyone was asked very directly, repeatedly, and specifically to stay home. The officials knew it was going to be challenging because it is Easter weekend. It's a time when a lot of people gather, uh, but they were saying, don't do it. It's one weekend. You can do it in the future, but just not this weekend. And we're so close to making progress. You know, officials didn't want to see that ruined, but I'm, I'm afraid of what these numbers are going to look like next week. How do we deal with people, though, who break those rules? What can even be done to police this type of behavior? Well, our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke with Denny Gagnon, who is the president of BCSI Investigations. He tracks people for a living. But he said, under these circumstances, it is extremely difficult to find the perfect solution to monitor COVID-19 rule breakers. Well, that's the, the the thing is that, you know, they've been, I keep listening to that, right? They're going to enforce, they're going to enforce, and now they got the Quarantine Act. So they got all those rules, oh, you must isolate yourself, right? The, if you have been diagnosed, if you have symptoms, if you have been in contact with someone that has uh, confirmed with COVID, if you have been advised by public health, that's from the government website, by the way, uh, you've been advised by public health that you've been exposed or you have returned from travel outside Canada. Well, the Quarantine Act carries a very large fine. The fine is up to $1 million in three years in prison. So that's the Quarantine Act, and I don't think people realize the the strength of the act. The challenge is, is how do we have people obey by it? The solutions that, you know, that I'm thinking, and, and I've, I've done a fair amount of thinking about this, is that in some cases you could take the quarantine individuals and these rules from the airport and take them to a quarantine area. There will be a huge number of people. Get them on the bus, go into a quarantine area, very difficult. Some of the Asian countries, they have used, in some cases, facial recognition. We don't have the level of facial recognition they have, not maybe that we wanted. But it's hard also to enforce when people have masks on. So facial recognition doesn't really work. Some countries have used, I think Korea has used monitoring of cellular phone through their apps. Again, in Canada, you're dealing with privacy issue. And what individuals are doing to, to get around that is that they're leaving their cell phone at home and going out. So you think they're home, but they're not. You could always use GPS trackers, ankle bracelet on everyone. Impossible. In some cases, they've done what's called spot checks by bell officers, so to check if someone is home or not. Again, you know, you're putting also those bail officer at risk. If somebody is symptomatic and the bail officer goes there to enforce the fact that, you know, well, if the person is not home, they're going to have to wait for that person. And again, you're dealing with how many hours, the, you know, the bail officer are going to sit and wait for that person. And then you've got the whole issue of the homeless individual. I mean, how do you monitor that? So enforcement is a huge problem at this point. Okay, so you ran through a whole list of possible solutions, but then said, look, this is why these things won't necessarily work. There's even more challenges. If What about all the people that are symptomatic? <laughs> you know, So we don't even know they're carrying the virus, but I think the solution is this. 
and I don't have the miracle uh, answer, but I think the solution is to demonstrate by each person a high level of respect to society and being accountable and also understand the damage you can cause and the risk of human life. And that's just your honor system. And I know it's really hard to enforce and so on, but I think people have to understand that there is consequences that, you know, it only takes one person to get caught. And some people have been caught in Quebec, Labrador, and Newfoundland so far in, in Saskatchewan. The fine wasn't that high. I think it was about 2300 But, you know, it's still pretty high. But people have to... People have to respect society, and this is what I would say is the best thing to do is that enforcement is one thing, but being a, a, a respectful human being is even it's much better. So you're telling me that here we are living in the year 2020, and for once we've come up against a problem that technology may not be the perfect solution for, that for once we actually have to rely back on human decency again. And that's really that's really interesting because they can even monitor. I was watching that they can monitor what's happening to the herd now. You know, there's not as much movement, so they can tell if the herd isn't moving as much and so on for earthquake and so on. But on the other end, they can't monitor people that have a virus. And you know, technology is not going to solve this at this point. There may be a miracle solution down the road where they're going to be you know implanted with some kind of monitoring tool, and I think that would be awful. But, you know, at this point, it's just going to be human beings being respectful of of other human beings. And I think that's the only thing we can do at this point. Hard to enforce, but I think that would be people have to think what they can cause if they go out with the virus and, and cause other people's even death. And I think that there's a really interesting ethical and philosophical question that's sort of born from all of this which is, should we get into the territory of facial recognition or tracking people's cell phone or strapping ankle bracelets onto everybody to see where they're going with GPS technology? We introduce the debate, what is more important, a person's privacy or public safety? Should public safety supersede in circumstances like these the privacy of the individual. I struggle with this every day, you know, because I really I don't like, for example, criminals to get away with things because of privacy issues. But in this case, I think safety and health should supersede privacy. But on the other end, the data that's being collected, you know, like for example, if there is tracking and so on, or is it going to be held after that? Or is it going to be destroyed? I mean, well, we have issues with social media. So, or is that going to be kept and used for whatever purpose down the road? And the, the monitoring of the data is going to be absolutely critical. It's got pros and cons, right? I mean, you know, the pros and is that you're going to have people stay home or feel threatened and scared to go out if they're monitored. On the other side, you're going to feel people are being monitored by government agencies. So there is pros and cons on both sides. I don't think privacy should supersede danger and health and so on, right? But there should be a limit of what we can do, and this is the dilemma of this whole situation. And it's quite the dilemma. It's such an interesting conversation. Oh, I think it's a great uh, topic, and uh, I I haven't found a solution. I've been studying it now for two weeks. And I keep listening to all the pros and cons, but the only solution will be if people are 
following the rules. And that's, you know, as you know, even on Vancouver Island, people aren't right now. And that's, that's insane. I mean, they, uh, you have to understand the damage you can cause. That is Denis Gagnon. He is the president of BCSI Investigations. They essentially track people for a living. Talking about trying to find that balance between privacy and making sure that public safety rules are followed. So what do you think about that question? And as he said, he has been struggling with this for a while now. Do you think public health supersedes the personal right to privacy? I mean, ideally, everyone would just obey the rules. And that way, none of this would become required. But as we were talking about, we're hearing a lot about people this weekend on ferries, on highways, traveling to small communities in Golden, Revelstoke, 100 Mile House, lots of reports of kind of people from out of town showing up there. If people aren't going to obey the rules, then how do we deal with this? So does the right to public health supersede the personal right to privacy? Uh, Let's get your take on this, though. Which one do you think should win out? And what should we do with rule breakers at this point? Let's talk to Bob. Hi, Bob. Hey, thanks for taking my call, and congratulations on the new show. Oh, thank you. Okay, what do you think about this question? I'm furious. I mean, I was in an accident eight years ago. I need treatments to keep me going. I can't go. I can't get my treatments. I'm getting stiffer and sore by the day. Oh, I'm with you on this one. Yeah. I'm trying my best to be responsible, be safe, and these people... uh, I mean, why... I think they need to do like they do at the border, especially with BC Ferries. That'd be an easier way to do it. Essential travel only. You know? So we should be asking them at the ferries and everywhere, why are, why are you going somewhere? Where are you going? Yeah. No, that's yeah. not a good enough reason. Go home? Yeah. All right. Well, Bob, thank you very much for that. And I do feel your pain on that because... I also had a couple of accidents years ago, and so I do need massage therapy and physio and those things, and I also haven't been able to go. And that same issue that you're talking about is one that I have also been dealing with. It's just getting more and more painful every day. Uh, let's go to Gavin, who's also called in this morning. Hi, Gavin. Hey, Sammy. Thank you. I, I uh, totally disagree. I think we can responsibly still travel and do things. And there is a mental health factor here, too, that we have to consider, in my view. I mean, we need to, we are social animals. I'm not saying be within six feet. I'm just saying, you know, getting on a ferry and respecting the six foot, uh, you know, parameter. I mean, can we not do that? It's not a police state. What about the small communities though, Gavin? And this is the big issue now is these small communities say, listen, we can't deal with an outbreak. Please don't bring it here. And if you've got people from the cities traveling to these small communities, potentially bringing it there, that's a problem, isn't it? I totally agree, but I don't have to be within six feet of anybody. I can still go sit in Moose Jaw or somewhere or, or, or Firefly and still be within like 100 feet of somebody and go look at a mountain for an afternoon and come back and jump back on a ferry. Okay. You know, responsibly is the key word here. Okay, so you think we should trust people? I don't think we should trust people at all. I totally against that. I think if we can't be responsible with ourselves, then we right. have a bigger problem and that bigger problem is going to catch up with us. But I, getting on a ferry for an afternoon and seeing the beautiful BC and the sunshine and being more than six feet away... If, uh, okay. I think we can manage that. Okay. Can we not? All right. Gavin, thank you. Gavin thinks that we should be able to trust people to keep that distance apart from each other. Uh, let's just go to Carl, who's also called in. Good morning, Carl. Good morning. What do you think? Well, what I think is we, we institute laws and we don't, uh, we don't really enforce them. People know that there's not going to be any bite. The fines can be up to a million dollars and somebody gets a $2,300 fine. They just laugh at it. My take on this is that um, we have to do things that people are going to respond to. If somebody comes back in from a vacation and they break this automatically, 
and it can be just a click of a button. Their passports are revoked for five years, and driving their driver's license revoked for five years. That means a lot more than money. A lot of these people who go down south, they've got lots of money. They have houses down there. If they can't get to them for five years, they will listen. Okay. Well, Carl, thank you very much for that. Uh, You know, there are a lot of people who are breaking this, probably more than we realize. I heard a story uh, from someone who works in a fishing store uh, the other day, and they were telling me that they, up until like a week or two ago, uh, up until the border was closed, they were still getting somebody from California, somebody coming up and wanting all this stuff and not taking any of it seriously. And when they were told, hey, do you mind? Like, we've got these rules going on here. Respect the rules. We don't want this many people in the store, that kind of thing. They just kind of laughed it off. So there are people out there who don't take the rules seriously. The question is, what do you do with those people? Do you track them? Do you make sure that everybody's obeying the rules and that way we track them and make sure we know who isn't? Or do you say, well, some people are going to do that overall. We're doing a good job. Let us know what you think. You can email me on this, simi at cknw.com. It's going to be an ongoing issue of discussion especially this weekend. I think this is going to be a critical weekend. We've got too many anecdotal reports of ferries busy. Uh, Galliano Island, you heard in the news, there were all these cars coming off Galliano Island's ferry uh, quite unusually yesterday, and locals there are concerned. They said, we don't have the ability to take care of a whole lot of people if they come down with COVID-19. Why are people coming from out of town to these small communities this weekend? Should we be tracking them? Should we be making sure they don't do that? That is the question. Keep it coming. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we're talking about people traveling this weekend, and we know it's happening. You know, yesterday afternoon late, I started to see a few comments out there on social media, but it grew louder and louder and snowballed all throughout the evening until we were hearing from many small communities very concerned about the number of kind of new people, different license plates that they were seeing in their communities. We talked about this earlier as well. And boy, we got quite a few messages on this. I had a tweet from someone who said, listen, if the government owns BC ferries, why are they not checking each passenger for home addresses? People should not be traveling for fun. The ferries are most definitely busier than usual. Uh, got another tweet, uh, text message, I should say, from someone who said, living in a small community, it is blatantly obvious the province isn't interested in saving our small populations. There's no, there's no snitch lines, no bylaw officers or any other kind of authority. Essentially, what they're saying is they want some enforcement of this. Another message that I got said, I live in Fairview Slopes and our underground parking spots are empty, as in they're normally full and they are empty. So where did everybody go? Well, we've heard from communities like Whistler, Squamish, Revelstoke. They're telling people to please stay away this weekend. Our guest is Sue McCortoff, who's the mayor of Asoyos, and they're also worried that people are going to think it's okay to travel out to that resort community this weekend. She joins me now to talk more about that. Good morning and thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Are you seeing, do you think, people coming to Asoyas this weekend? Well, I'm sure there are going to be some because I've heard from some of our residents that they're seeing cars that they don't recognize because uh, we're a small community, uh, 5,000 in the town. And um, so I did my own drive yesterday and went around town and had a look. And I, I can't say that I was, that I saw many 
Um, there were a few, and of course, we're a resort municipalities, so we depend on our tourism um, uh, traffic in Asuias. And, you know, we were 22 degrees yesterday, so it was nice. Uh, there were people out paddleboarding, if you can imagine. I don't think the lake is that warm, but some people were out there anyway. Locals, uh, residents. I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> locals. Um, <laughs> yes, they oh, were locals. <laughs> okay, okay. Are hotels open? Like, are there places for people to stay if they come to town? Uh, there are a few hotels that are not open, but most of the hotels are open because this is the time of year that they're open. Sometimes they have people um, living there. Um, we still have apparently a few snowbirds here that um, that live here uh, for several months over the winter, and that's what they use, the hotels. But the parking lots at the hotels do not look they're, they're, they're quite sparse at this point. Are you concerned, though, about this happening, and has the community made any plans to deal with this? Well, we're, we're giving out a consistent, coordinated message with the federal government, the provincial government, our provincial health officer. Uh, we're not saying anything different than anybody else. I said at my council meeting the other day, which is probably why a few people have called me, that we wanted people to stay home. We don't want them to come here this weekend. We have a big event tomorrow. Normally, the Asuias Festival Society puts on Easter extravaganza. Um, My job, because I'm a member, uh, has been to do the egg hunt down on the school grounds. Um, I I, I scatter 3,500 chocolate eggs on, on the school ground which I'm not doing this year, of course, it's been cancelled, but we that brings many, many, many people, people who normally come here to visit their grandparents, visit their family, um, go camping, uh, because it's usually fairly nice weather. We're Canada's warmest welcome and oftentimes Canada's hotspot. So we were, you know, we normally have that. I have to say, though, that our Easter Bunny um, is going to dress up and he's going to be in the back of a truck, and he's going to go down Main Street and a few other streets in town waving to uh, some of the kids. From a distance. No, yeah, from a distance, right. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but I wonder, Mayor McCordoff, like, if you know that there are people who are kind of violating these rules and coming to town, do, is there an education, uh, like are bylaw officers ready to talk to them? Any plans made in that regard? Absolutely. Our bylaw officer, we hired one in-house last year. He has been extremely busy going around, talking to people, trying to educate them, dealing with uh, people who phone our EOC, our Emergency Operations Center hotline, and say they've seen people congregate here and this store is open and why are they open, that type of thing. He deals with that on a daily basis, as do um, the rest of us. Um, on on uh, the other town staff and town council. All right. We'll wait and see what happens then. Thank you so yes. much for your time. You're very welcome. That Have is a nice Easter. You Bye-bye. too. Yeah, that's Sue McCordop, the mayor of Asoyas, uh, talking about how that community, like Whistler, like Squamish, Revelstoke, so many others, uh, those small, normally quite touristy areas, are asking people to stay away this weekend. Uh, but... Lots of anecdotal stories that we're getting from people out there saying that is not the case. You heard Mayor McCourtoff also say that she took a drive around and, yes, seeing some license plates that don't start necessarily always there. So what do we do with people who are doing that, who are clearly doing what they are not supposed to be doing? This is Mornings with Simi. 
talk about the fishing industry. So part of the huge challenge that governments are facing right now when it comes to mitigating the economic impact of COVID-19 is that every industry is kind of being impacted in different ways. Now, Melissa Collier is our next guest, and she's the co-owner of West Coast Wild Scallops over on Vancouver Island. And they have got freezers full of product that they are struggling to sell because the restaurant industry is no longer up and running. To talk more about it, she joins us now. Good morning, Melissa. Good morning. Do you mainly just supply restaurants? Um, Yeah. So with our scallop business, at least 75, 80% of our um, sales go into the restaurant industry. Uh, We do have some of that goes into smaller retail type locations, um, we also sell some to Skiprados there in Vancouver, who's a community-supported fishery. So would you say that this is affecting other uh, people that you've talked to as well in the fishing industry? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think everyone's getting impacted. For us with scallops, it's unique because we direct market and catch our own, um, our own product. Most fisheries you sell to a processor, and then they take that product and they sell it to whoever their buyers are. And about 80% of the seafood here in Canada is actually exported. Um, meanwhile, Canada is only is importing 90% of their seafood. So a lot of the seafood that's caught here on the coast uh, goes to export-type buyers. For us with our scallops, there was no market, which is why we started our business. Um, we direct market and sale here in Canada. And our model is very different than what a typical fisheries model is. Our fishery is in the winter simply because we fish other things in the summer. We go out and we have a lot of upfront costs with our scalps. Um, we have food and fuel. We have licensing fees, deckhand wages, and then we bring our product in and we have custom processing, shipping, as well as cold storage fees that we have monthly paying when we have things sitting there. Um, so as you said, we have a lot of products sitting in cold storage right now that we might not be able to sell with um, the restaurant's closing and everything is slowing down to a halt. So for us, it's a bit different because we have ready fished and we have product in stock. Um, right. With our other fisheries, we also fish prawns and salmon. It's a little bit more uncertain right now. Um, some of the seasons that already happened were like halibut. Some fishermen were told not to bother going fishing because no one's buying. There's cold storage facilities are full. Ports are closed. Things aren't moving. Um, So with our prawn season so far, it's already been delayed at least two weeks, mostly due to market conditions. Um, Some of it's also just logistics, operational logistics for processing facilities. So I think a lot of families are in the same boat. For us, again, our next season is our prawn season. So there's just a lot of uncertainty. No one really knows what's going to happen. Now, Melissa, I know I love scallops and prawns. I know a lot of other people there do too. What about just selling this directly to the public then? We try. It's not as easy as it sounds. <laughs> um, I've spent a lot of time trying to make connections with different markets and different places to sell. It, it's not easy for fishermen to sit down on their dock and sell. There's a lot of time involved to sit there. We're also a freezer boat, so I would actually have to run my big diesel engine to run my freezer just to sit there and hope that someone might come down to the dock to buy. So we work through a lot of distributors, retailers, um, that kind of direction to try mm-hmm. to get our product to market. But there isn't a lot of little shops anymore. I mean, there's quite a few yeah. in Vancouver. Um, but to make those connections as individual fishermen and then to explain to them why our scallop, which is very, very unique in the world of scallops, um, why, why they should carry our scallops. So what? it's, pardon? Why are they so unique? 
Um, well, it's a specific species of scallops. It's the only scallop here in BC that's abundant enough for a commercial harvest. So they are completely wild. There's no seeding or any kind of intervention. Any other scallop coming from BC is a farmed product or you have East Coast scallops. Um, all those uh, scallops are really big and consumers are used to eating a big chunk of white meat. That's what you see as a scallop. Right. Well, scallops are actually a whole animal. They come in a shell. Um, ours are way smaller, and we actually keep them in their shell. So thinking more like a mussel or a clam, you can oh. cook the whole thing in the shell. You can eat the whole thing. You can still take the rest of the body off and just eat the white meat if you want to, but there is a lot of flavor and texture that's with the whole animal, and, and they're really, really delicious. Okay, well, but listen, again, they're just small and different. But you've sold me. So like, <laughs> I think a lot of people, there's such an effort right now, Melissa, too, for people to try to support local businesses, right? Whether it's the restaurants and all all of that. And I think if people hear this, they go, like me, I'm sold. Where can I get some? For sure. So um, it's hard to get them, though, because like I said, it's hard to connect with retailers. But you can get them through Skiprados, which is a community-supported fishery in Vancouver. Um, they actually have the pictures and names and where it's caught and everything right on their products so that you know exactly who you're supporting and where you're getting it from. Um, we're actually just sending some scallops out to One Fish, Two Fish Market out in Langley, for those people in the broader range, um, like we have uh, Codfather's Seafoods in Kelowna sells them. We've got Finest at Sea, both in Vancouver and Victoria, oh, that okay. has that's, them on occasion. That's my and, fish store, so that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so I can go in and ask for West Coast wild scallops. You can, though they haven't restocked in a while because, like everybody, you're, you're nervous to restock, right, yeah. on something. Our scallops haven't, with finest at sea at least, they haven't sold a lot of them. They're not flying off the shelf because people look at them and they go, what is that? That's not what I'm thinking when I see a scallop. So um, the thing is, is trying to, to get people buying them enough so that the stores want to keep stopping them and so keep bringing them in. What's going to happen to all this product? You mentioned so many other uh, processors and distributors have the same thing, cold storage full of product. Uh, what about getting it more open to the public, or is it just going to sit there? I don't know. I, I, don't, I can't really speak to other people's um, product or the processor's product that's sitting in storage. Um, a lot of it has longer shelf lives. So our scallop has a pretty limited shelf life, so we're in a bit more of, a, of an interesting situation. Um, I would love for there to be a better infrastructure. Uh, I've talked a lot recently about if we could build a better infrastructure here in BC to support fishermen and processors and companies here in BC and get our food into local markets, right. local grocery stores. But we just don't have the infrastructure to make that happen right now because that's just not the flow of where our product typically goes. It reminds me very much of spot prawns, Melissa. Exactly. I remember like 15 years ago when we were shipping all of our spot prawns overseas and then we started to discover how good they are right here. Well, if you believe it, though, the majority of spot prawns caught on the coast are still being shipped overseas. Um, up until this year, which we plan on fishing prawns, if we get to fish prawns differently, um, we will be doing um, them in frozen tubs and tails, which is what people here like spot to have prawns, them in. Yeah. Um, but up until this time, all of our spot prawns have been exported. Wow. See, this is, my boat. W- is this an opportunity also, do you think, for us to change that? Is to- Absolutely. I think this is a great opportunity for people to really sit back and look at our food systems. I mean, it's, it's appalling that 80% of the seafood caught on this coast never meets Canadians' mouths or plates. Like, 
we have some of the best seafood in the world. Why are we bringing it in from other countries when we could be eating what we have right here? Um, our fisheries are well managed. We have fishing families that are just like everybody else. They're just trying to make ends yeah. meet. And we just happen to have an office of the most beautiful place in the world. And why not support each other and support local and, and eat the food that our country has to offer? I like that idea. All right, Melissa, I'll take a look for it. I'll look around for it. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Appreciate you letting us uh, tell our story and being interested in the fishing industry. I am. That is Melissa Collier, owner of West Coast Wild Scallops. As she pointed out, they're not the typical scallops that you see. They're still in the shell. They're smaller than those great big scallops that you're used to. But hey, they are local and you could be helping a local company out. So ask for them where you buy your seafood, since we're apparently all spending so much time at the grocery store these days. I think you could probably ask the person at the seafood counter, hey, where do I get some of these West Coast wild scallops? And yeah, ask local for your seafood. This is a good opportunity for us to focus more of that fishing community on selling that product right here in BC. This is Mornings with Simi. Now let's talk about an app technology in the use of fighting COVID-19. Daniel Leung is a creator of an app called Live Now. It is ready to use. It's a health app that can track the spread of COVID-19. It will let you know if you have come into contact with someone who has the virus. Now he's from BC, but currently living in Silicon Valley. And he spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer about contact tracing and how his app works. Contact tracing is a method of tracking down a disease or a virus that's typically done very manually. It's been done the past couple of hundred years to track down um, the source and where exactly the pandemic is currently at. It, basically, what you do is you have a healthcare professional or a volunteer that's trained to do this. Talk to every single person who is a positive case, a positive patient, and you ask them who they've had contact with and where they've been for the past, in this case, 14 days. So as you can imagine, with thousands of cases, it's pretty hard to do. And a lot of patients might not even remember where they've been the past 14 days and who they've had contact with. Not only that, they don't even know, like if they just walk by someone or spent 10 minutes in the same room as someone in the grocery store, they might not know exactly who those people are. So that's kind of not really useful when you hit a certain critical mass of cases. Yeah, I so mean, that makes sense. I mean, looking back on, you know, what I did over the past two weeks, there's no way I'd be able to tell you, I mean, this circumstance is a little different because we've been in isolation, mm-hmm. but under normal circumstances, you know, there's no way that I could tell you every single person I talked to or yeah. ran across in the grocery store. So that's how it's traditionally done. That's how it's being done uh, for the most part in Canada right now. With our technology, we basically use anonymous data from your phone to see if anyone else has made contact with you. So your phone and everyone's phone has an anonymous device ID. Let's say 100 people in, I don't know, Pacific Center came in contact with someone who had COVID-19. Anyone in that general area who has our app, this app would be scanning for the anonymous device ID of every single person's phone around that person. So if we know that a certain person in a certain area with a certain device ID had COVID-19, then we'll flag all the hundred other device IDs around that person that were picked up to notify them that they may have had contact with COVID-19. So on that end, like it's basically like making the whole contact tracing process instant and completely automated 
It's done in the matter of a split second, basically. And as a user, as an individual citizen, you would get a notification telling you, you may have had contact with COVID-19 at Pacific Center at 3 p.m. two days ago. We suggest you self-isolate and then we present the user with a couple of next steps based on a risk assessment that we run in the app with you. So we'll ask you a couple of questions to understand your risk and your symptoms. And you complete this basically daily for the next 14 days. And based on those changes, we may suggest you either stay at home or call 811 or go to the ER. So these are based on the latest CDC guidelines and they do change and they are fluid. So that's the benefit for the, the citizens. They, they get to figure out whether they may have come in contact with COVID-19 and if so, what to do. But also we, we have the ability to tell them where the hotspots for COVID-19 are. So what places to avoid and where not to go if you don't want to get COVID-19, which I, I think no one wants. <laughs> On the flip side, we, because we are collecting all of this anonymous data, and we know how many device IDs have come in contact with COVID-19, we can basically track where the virus has been and how many people it's touched in real time. So as you can imagine, that is really useful for public health as well as hospitals and the ones on the front line. Currently, what we're hearing from frontline workers is they have no idea how many cases are going to come in today, tomorrow, the next week, or the next month. Everything's really reactive with our technology because we know how many people make contact with COVID-19 in a certain area. We can actually predict, based on the current stats, around 4.8% of people will require an ICU bed who contracted to COVID-19, and around 10 to 20% will be hospitalized. Based on their stats, we can actually estimate down to the specific hospital how many patients they can expect to come in seven to 10 days in advance and how many might need an ICU bed. And that's really, really useful in terms of resource planning and also just providing clarity to the frontline workers who are who have no idea what they might be facing the, today, the next day, and the next week. It all sounds really, really impressive. Is anything like this being used elsewhere in the world? So nothing kind of to this extent. Um, however, basic contact tracing through mobile apps has been used in Singapore and with Japan, as well as with South Korea, um, they seem, they've seen some pretty good success. The main difference is they adopted these solutions very early on, and their solutions do require on direct contact tracing. So the main difference is we can do indirect and delayed contact tracing, whereas those other solutions right now do direct contact tracing only. So what that means is both the person who is positive with COVID-19 and you have to have the app at the same time at the time of contact to be notified. Even if you download the app four days later and you had contact four days ago, the app would have no idea. I hear that you've reached out to provincial governments across Canada. It sounds like great technology, but how has this idea been received by those government agencies? Yeah, so we have reached out to a couple of government officials as well as public health. And I think there's two problems here. Um, one problem is we might not be reaching the right people. I know these are really, really busy people and these are really busy times. So I don't know if we're getting in front of the right people right now. The other problem is it just seems like everything is at least the contact that we've had with the government has been pretty slow and there isn't very much sense of urgency there. I get that some governments are currently focused on 
managing the peak and uh, managing ensuring that our frontline workers have the PPE that they need. And obviously that's really, really important. But I feel that we definitely do need to move towards more of a preventative and proactive approach to managing COVID-19 instead of reactive. I would like to see the Canadian government move a little bit faster. We are currently in discussion with other countries and other states and things are definitely moving. There's a lot more sense of an urgency on that end. So our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chat with Daniel Leung. He is the creator of an app called Live Now and believes it could really be a game changer in the fight against COVID-19. So he told the BC government about the app and what was the reaction? So the initial feedback that we got was, um, oh, this could be a privacy uh, concern. We're concerned about how the public may perceive this type of technology on the privacy end. And then the conversation kind of ended there. I was a little bit disappointed by that because we as a mental health company take privacy extremely seriously and we have multiple measures in place to protect user privacy and i don't think we kind of got even a shot at explaining that component both myself and a couple of uh, other medical professionals who are endorsing this do feel that this is a solution that that is really needed even the who has uh, spoken about solutions like this Yeah, and talking to you about this app is actually extremely well-timed because on the show today, we're having conversations about in a time of crisis like this, does public safety supersede the need for personal privacy? Although what it sounds like you're saying is that your app has factored in personal privacy and does still allow for that while also accommodating and working towards public safety. Yeah, totally. And um, that is kind of a point that a lot of people bring up. Should we be giving up privacy for the sake of public health? Everyone will have their own opinions about that. But the way the data flows and the way privacy works with the specific COVID-19 app is there's two sets of data. So there is the identifiable data. So that might include your name, basically your profile. And then there's the data on the devices that your phone has seen or interacted with, as well as a heat map of where you've been. And so the first bucket, the profile, the identifiable data, that stays on your phone. It never leaves your phone until two kind of conditions are met, which I'll get into later. Uh, What does leave your phone is the de-identified anonymous data. So that does get uploaded. In terms of when your profile might leave your phone is, first off, you have to have been flagged as potentially having contact with COVID-19. At that point, we tell you, you may have had contact with COVID-19. We tell you what the next steps are. We ask you to do a risk assessment. And then at the very final step, we ask whether or not you want to share your information with local public health agencies. Up until then, there isn't even an option to identify you. We really don't care about who you are. We just care about how many people have COVID and how we can fight it. That is Daniel Leung. So the app is called Live Now, and he thinks this product is available for immediate deployment. And he says they're just waiting on a partnership with the government because he needs big distribution for this to work. But he said if they did get the green light, this contact tracing app could be in the hands of citizens and frontline workers within a week, seven days. This is Mornings with Simi. I think their actions are selfish and self-serving and put others at risk. And that's the message I'd like to get people to hear. Please don't just think about yourself. Please think about the thousands of people in rural communities that will not be able to weather this well. 
That is the mayor of Squamish. We spoke to her earlier this week, asking people to stay away from small communities on this long weekend, understanding that, yes, it's been weeks now. People are frustrated. They've been cooped up at home. They have been isolating. They've been doing all the right things, but saying these small communities can't handle an influx of new people who might bring COVID-19. They don't have the facilities to deal with an outbreak. Well, I wish people were heeding those words, but it certainly doesn't seem that way. We have been hearing about busy ferries, busy highways. Uh, we spoke to the mayor of Asoyas earlier saying, yes, she is seeing different license plates in town as well. So we know that people out there are unfortunately on the move. Now, normally we would talk politics with Elise Mills, but she joins us now from West Vancouver to talk about this story instead. Good morning, Elise. Good morning, Simi, and thank you so much for having me on this morning because this is an issue that my neighbours and I have begged our city council to manage and to get ahead of what other communities were going to do because the domino effect on West Vancouver and our beaches, and I'm not talking about Ambleside or Dundrave, I'm talking about the four little coves in the communities that I live in. We cannot handle anyone visiting us, and everybody has broken the rules, and our neighbourhood, we're just pulling our hair out. Yeah, tell me, so you reached out to us this morning because of what you were seeing in your community. What is it? Okay, so there's a bit of a backstory here. 14 days ago, there was no signage in West Vancouver. There was absolutely no movement by city council. I reached out to Councillor Craig Cameron, a great guy, but uh, one guy on council is not going to move council to respond accordingly. So my question to him was, why couldn't we do what Lions Bay had done, which is put the arms down on the little coves? Because what people don't understand, I live on Sandy Cove, The neighboring cove to me is Stearman, and then it goes Caulfield Cove and Bachelor Bay and Eagle Harbor. And you've got to remember, our beaches are only sandy as long as low tide exists. And the streets around our homes are only two meters wide. Mm. So what begins to happen is, like, for example, last weekend, the weekend before, we get 50, 60 cars that are parked along our street. We can't go out. We can't walk our dogs. It would be like if I showed up at, um, I don't know, a house on 41st and Churchill or 43rd and Churchill and had 50 of my friends park in front of your house. Oof. We can't, we're trapped. I was literally trapped for two, for two weekends ago. I couldn't go outside. People were actually parking in my driveway. Now, yesterday, what really made me call your producer was yesterday I was up at Caulfield Village. Uh, our community has committed to only grocery shopping seven to every, every seven to ten days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, because we know our retailers. We know the staffs. Um, we want to keep them safe. I have decade relationships with these people. And so, but uh, I saw these license plates and to the mayor of Asoyas, I saw Kelowna license plates, Kelowna license plate holders with Kelowna stickers on the back and they were pouring into Caulfield Village to catch those Horseshoe Bay ferries. Mm. Um, And I, I, I think it's very good for our fishmongers and other food merchants, but what they did was they wiped out our toilet paper supply and they've got to remember that we haven't Seeing any product in West Van is almost a scarcity. Like, you you could not get toilet paper here for the longest time. Oh, man. We haven't seen Lysol or Clorox or half of the detergents we've needed for 21 days. So you're noticing this again then in the last 24 hours? Yeah, absolutely. I was coming back racing from a very ra- very quick grocery shop in and out and I take the highway because I'm in uh, I'm you know I'm in Sandy right. Cove so I come down and it was bumper to bumper 
And I thought, what is going on? Is there a car accident? Like, yeah. What's going on? And then I pulled into Cossel Village because that's sort of on my route down to my place. And it was jam-packed, uh, specifically the Safeway and the liquor store that are there. Now, it's hard enough for us to uh, to manage our own community, you know, with our number of residents and our, our services. Uh, and we're really, I think, doing a great job banding together. But if we're all in self-isolation, and sorry, you'll hear bylaws pulling up behind me. That's okay. Right um, that if we're in self-isolation and doing our job, um, then we're asking you, as much as I know you love our community and our little coves and spectacular beaches, please, if you care for us, don't visit. Ambleside and Dunderaber are a very different story. And but it's happening, it seems like, at least everywhere. I mean, I don't think it's just West Van, like maybe they were going through, but we're hearing this anecdotally from along the BC-Alberta border, Golden, Revelstoke, like all these communities, seeing people who don't normally come there. Well, you know, Simi, the issue was that I asked City Council in West Vancouver to consider the domino effect when White Rock closes its beaches and piers and promenades. Now, it's very different for residents at at, uh, Spanish Banks, for example. They've got a huge amount of space between parking lots and their homes. Um, And there's enough of a beach. It's a huge beach. It's very different. So I would say the same thing for Ambleside. But West Van never took into account the residents that are further towards Lower Caulfield all the way out to Glen Eagles and Horseshoe Bay. And I think, you know, I was speaking to residents, my neighbors this morning, everybody was quietly crouching around trying to get out before the crowds come. Um, But they've really left it to us neighbors to create logs, photographic evidence, and then start calling bylaw. But I will tell you, I've called bylaw several times, Simi, and they only just got back to me two days ago over 10 day period. All right. Well, Elise, we will keep track. I know we're going to be talking more about this on the weekend, but email me and let me know what the weekend looks like. Okay. I will send you some great video and photographic evidence that I think you'll be shocked by, Simi. Oh boy. Okay. Thanks for that, Elise. Okay. And now happy Easter, Simi, and stay safe. And happy Easter to you as well. Thank you so much for joining us and for giving us that info. That is Elise Mills. She lives in small community of Sandy Cove in West Vancouver, saying it's ridiculous the amount of traffic they have seen recently especially in some of the smaller coves and beaches, uh, just terrible. Uh, now, we got a, a text message on this as well from someone who said, it's my opinion that the phrase, we're all in this together, needs to go. Because clearly, with all the travel going on, we are not in this together. I have two groups of people on two sides of me right now that are in my little community that don't live here. Uh, that's a message that was sent to us.